may be seated. and welcome to Gateway. We're glad that all of you are here with us this morning. Hey, before we get into our message this morning, uh, this week, uh, many of our students uh, are going to be starting a new school year. Uh, and on Wednesday, if you hear a shout, it's the parents lifting up a shout of praise as their kids are going back. Uh, yeah, but uh, if, if you're not going to school this week, it probably means you started going to school last week. And so uh, before we get started today, I just wanted to pray for all of our students and all of our teachers and our administrators as they get ready for the new school year. Uh, you know, we delivered uh, a meal to the Winfield High School and Hurricane High School this week. And both days, it was, you know, as the teachers are coming back, I'm thinking, you had the whole summer off, and now you, it's like, that's the ultimate Monday, right? Like, you're like, man, like, the mountain lies before me on what this school year is going to be, and uh, that, that might be, if I'm not a teacher, but I have to imagine if I was a teacher, that would be the hardest thing for me, is that first day back, like, here we go again. But, uh, hey, uh, let's, uh, let's pray for, for all of them as they start this new year. Father God, uh, we just lift up all of our students, and uh, we just uh, pray that this would be an amazing school year for them and, and that, you know, there's going to be ups and downs and there's going to be challenges. But, Father, I pray that they would look to you in those times and they would not be led astray, that they would not uh, give up on you. They, they would not give up on the things that they have been taught, but they would press harder into their faith as life presses harder into them. And so, Father, I pray just a, a year of blessing for them and, and that they would see you showing up for them time and time again, but that they would be looking for you in each of those ways. And that, Father, they would be a light in their schools. Uh, such a great opportunity with so many students around them. I just pray that they would shine the light of your son Jesus to those around them, that they would love on others the way that you love us. And I just pray that our students uh, would just make a huge impact in all of their schools. Father, I lift up all, all of our teachers and, and the administrators. And, and this mountain, like I said, it lies before them. And, and there's so much to come, so much unknown that is to come. We never know what what, what a new school year will bring. But Father, I pray that you would prepare them and strengthen them for whatever is to come their way. You know what's coming. And I just pray that you would start preparing them now for whatever is in store, good or bad, and that, they, that our teachers and administrators, they would look to you and they would look to love on our kids the way that you love us. And, and Father, I just, um, I just ask that you would bless this school year and, and that there would be a year of peace and, and a, a year that uh, we can look back on and just see you working in so many ways. And Father, we're so thankful that we can come to you with these things. I just lift up our students, our teachers, and administrators for this new school year. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Many years ago, Disney World started doing exit surveys in order to try to find out if people were having a satisfying experience when they came to their park. And they learned through the exit interviews that Unbelievably, there were actually people who were leaving disappointed, and they thought, 
How in the world can this be? I mean, this is the greatest place on earth. That's kind of our tagline, right? This is the greatest place on, the earth, on this earth. This is the greatest theme park in the world. How could anybody ever leave disappointed? But they found out that amongst all these excellent interviews of disappointment, there was a common thread with all of them. See, people, they didn't complain about the long lines. They didn't complain about how hot it was. They didn't complain about the high prices. They complained because they had given their family vacation time. They had given their vacation time from work. They had invested thousands of dollars. They had driven thousands of miles across America to come there. They had come to Disney World for one reason, to see one person. And they had been there all day long, and they never saw him. And so people were leaving disappointed. And do you know who it was? Of course you know who it was. It was Mickey Mouse. There was a wrong answer there somewhere. I didn't hear him, but it wasn't Mickey Mouse. It was Mickey Mouse, and they saw, they never saw Mickey Mouse. That's why you go to Disney World, right? The great, it's the greatest place on earth because of Mickey. And so the executives, in defense of themselves, they said, you know what, though? We're not going to change the aura and the magic of this place. We're not going to change it by having a Mickey on every corner. This isn't a Starbucks, okay? That would be terrible. If a kid is riding along on a tram and he's turned around and goes, Bye, Mickey! And then 600 yards later he turns around and there's another Mickey. That's not good. That's not any better than it already is. I mean, that's like having two Santa Clauses on one street. Like, it just ruins the magic. And they said, we can't do that. So you know what they did? They came up with an idea, and their idea was for everybody, let's not have more Mickey Mouses, but let's provide a better opportunity for everybody to see the one Mickey Mouse. And so the idea was, let's provide an opportunity every day at the same time every day that everybody, if they chose, could come and see Mickey. So they started to have a parade. And if you have been to Disney World, you know what that parade looks like. They go right down Main Street, Main Street at the same time every day so you can be ready to see Mickey Mouse if you so choose. And you're guaranteed to see Mickey. Why? Because Mickey is the Grand Marshal front and center of the parade. Everybody will see Mickey. It's guaranteed if you go to the parade. If you so choose, you will not leave disappointed. You will get to see Mickey. And so the result was this. When people left, nobody was disappointed anymore. They might be broke, they might be sunburnt, but they're not disappointed, okay? Likewise, when people come to church, whether they realize it or not, they come to see one person, and guess what? It ain't Mickey Mouse, and it's not the worship leader, and it's not the preacher, it's Jesus. And I hope that we at Gateway never disappoint them in that search. Jesus must be front and center, evident through our entire service. When we worship, when we teach, when we greet and welcome visitors, when we pray for one another in all areas, people should see Jesus. They should sense Jesus. They should feel Jesus in this place, that he's behind everything that we do. And I sure hope that we don't leave them feeling disappointed when they leave. Last week, we, we started this themes of Revelation series, and we said that Revelation is actually a book 
of encouragement. Now, you might have heard different sermons on the book of Revelation. You might have studied Revelation in different ways, and it can be a confusing book. It can be a scary book sometimes, right? There's a lot of imagery, a lot of language that is confusing and scary, and you're like, what am I looking at here, right? Most people shy away from it because there's just a lot in the book of Revelation. But what we said last week, and maybe you've never heard it written this or said this way before, but this is a book of encouragement. It was written to encourage the Christians who were suffering during that time through intense persecution, to give them hope so they might be faithful until the end. And it can give us encouragement today as well. Why? Because through the entire book, the theme remains the same, that Jesus is in charge. And just the way he was in charge back then when it was written, he's in charge for us today, that no matter what might come our way, we know that Jesus is in charge and that he is wearing the crown. Now, before Jesus left this earth, he gave his followers, back in, at the end of Ma- the book of Matthew, he gave his followers the Great Commission, which he prefaced with these, three, with these words, all authority in heaven and on earth, has been given to me. Not some, not a little bit, all authority has been given to me. Jesus has been given all authority, and make no mistake, Jesus was in charge then, he's in charge now, and he'll be in charge until the end and throughout all eternity. He is the King of kings, and he is the Lord of lords, and he is wearing the crown. He is in charge. Now, why does Jesus wear the crown? Well, three reasons. He wears the crown because of who he is. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, we're going to go back to the book of Revelation today, back to chapter 1 of the book of Revelation. We're going to spend a lot of time in that today. We're going to go through it a lot, uh, and we're going to kick around a little bit in Revelation, but our main place today is Revelation 1. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there, and, and we'll be there for a while. Revelation chapter 1, verse 4 Revelation makes it easy because you just like flip the last book, right? You got to get through the concordance and the maps, but it makes it pretty easy. All right, Revelation 1, verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who was and who, who is and who was and who is to come. And we see here that Jesus is eternal. He was, is, and is to come. And and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, because Jesus is faithful, this is who he is, the firstborn of the dead. He was the first to rise from the dead and to stay alive. And Jesus, and, and the ruler of kings on the earth, because Jesus rules over the nations. He is eternal, he is faithful, he was the first to rise from the dead and stay alive, and he rules over the nations. He wears the crown because of who he is. We can also say he wears the crown because of what he did. So we continue on in chapter 1 here. Then this next part is a reference to Calvary. John writes, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now next week we'll be in chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation where we'll dig into this a little bit more. The last reason that Jesus wears the crown is because of what he will do. Verse 7 Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. 
So he wears the crown because of who he is. He wears the crown because of what he did, and he wears the crown because of what he will do. As we continue on in chapter 1 and verse 8, we see another interesting title for Jesus. It says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The Greek alphabet, the first and last letters, are Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And there's no mistaking the identity and place of Christ here and all throughout the book of Revelation. If you go to chapter 19, we see him returning on a white horse in a future exalted state. And so we're going to read through chapter 19, starting with verse 11. And I want you to notice the incredible descriptions of Jesus here in chapter 19. So verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And as you read through that, you see the different descriptions of Jesus. All of it might sound a little bit like a little bit of overkill, but for the contemporary Christians, these words were the assurance that Jesus was in charge, and it would be like giving a glass of refreshing cold water to somebody that was languishing in the desert. See, to these people of John's day, he's saying, take heart, because Jesus is here to save the day. He sees you, and he's coming. That's not all. Back to Revelation 1. I know we're jumping around a lot, but we'll be parked in Revelation 1 now for a while. Revelation 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a, a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Theatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven gold, golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a gold, golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the shining sun, in full, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. 
As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And what we have here is John overemphasizing that his words are not his own. This is not just him writing his own little story, not him writing his own little part. This is from Jesus himself. These are the words of Jesus. We talked about the red letters being in Revelation. This is Jesus's victory parade. He is the grand marshal for all to see. And in times of trial and persecution, Jesus is the one everybody wants to see and the one from whom everyone needs to hear. And in Revelation, Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we have his letters to the seven churches. And these churches, they were real congregations and they represent every church and all believers from this time and throughout history. And they were Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Theatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And scholars believe that these cities were most likely Roman postal district towns, and the order in which we see them is the order in which the postman would have traveled along his route. Now, you can look at that list of churches and, and notice that there are New Testament churches that aren't mentioned there, like Galatia or Colossae, uh, Corinth, and Thessalonica. Now, in light of the overwhelming fact that Jesus is the Lord over all and over the church, well, what can we take away from these seven letters that were spoken or written to his people both then and now? Well, first, it, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter who you are. The church at Ephesus was probably the most notable church in that whole list of churches because of its membership role. Uh, amongst its membership, at this church of Ephesus, at one time or another, it had the likes of the Apostle Paul. It had Priscilla and Aquila. It had uh, Paul's apprentice Timothy. It even had the Apostle John. I mean, this was like, this, you see these mega churches where like celebrities go there and you're like, man, Justin Bieber goes to that church sometimes. But like, but like you're like, wow, that's a pretty important church. I always, I, I always looked at like, uh, you know, Chris Tomlin and David Crowder, Christian Stanfield. You're like, you see these guys playing music and you're like, wow, I wonder where they go to church. And you're like, oh, they all go to the same church in Atlanta. They all go to Passion. You're like, wow, I wonder what the worship's like there, right? Like, that would be amazing. And you look at the church of Ephesus, and you're like, man, Paul, Timothy, John, the preaching there must be, like, amazing. Like, I, that's a church I would love to go to just to see the preaching. And, and can you imagine this long list of patriarchs that were all at the church of Ephesus at one time or another? I mean, this church is a church with a rich history. I, I mean, imagine how, like, the, the, the signs, the, the pews, you know, they would have been like, wow, there's so much history in this church. I mean, with all that in mind, it should matter who they are, right? I mean, similar to the Apostle Paul, Paul says, if anybody could boast in their accomplishments, it would be me. Like, I can boast over all y'all because I have, I have everything. I've got all the accomplishments you could ever have. And it's the same with, like, Ephesus. You're like, look, if anybody was going to boast about how awesome they are and how big they are, like, it would be us. But here's the thing about Ephesus. You would think with all of that that they would be like, man, they're right on the right track. We never have any shortcomings. We never, ha we never fall behind. But they were not without their problems because they had left their first love and they needed to repent. 
And so whether it's first century believers or 21st century believers, you know, we all have this uh, ongoing struggle with pride and arrogance. Sometimes we can get a, a little full of ourselves, you know, we can kind of pump ourselves up and we, we think that we deserve a certain kind of life. Man, I, I've done right all my life. I've done the right things. I've said the right things. I, I, I deserve to be having this blessed life. I deserve a certain kind of life, right? But here's the thing. When I study God's word, I know that pride in my accomplishments or, or arrogance about who I think I am and what I think I've done, wow, that, that doesn't get me very far with Jesus. As humans, we always fight the flesh and the urge to put ourselves first, to, put our, to look out for number one above all others. You know, we're, we're more concerned about our appearance and we worry about what others might think about us. You know, I don't know about you, but sometimes like you enter a room and people start whispering. And you're like, man, I knew I shouldn't have wore these shoes. Like you tell your wife or your spouse, you're like, I knew. I told you I shouldn't. I was nervous about this. And they're already talking. We just got here. And what's really happening is they're like, I think the potato salad went bad in the car, right? Like it's really like it's, it, they're really talking about something completely different. But you think it's about you because so often we think it's all about us. We think that people are focused on us when really they probably couldn't even care less. Not just that, but we make decisions based upon the approval of others. We want others to see us as successful or as cool or as whatever other range of things. We want people to like us. We want to please other people. And we struggle with a puffed up ego. And sometimes, well, we start thinking, man, I've done so much. And we, and we think more of ourselves than, well, well, maybe we should. It reminds me of the story of, of Christian Herder that preacher Wayne Smith of Southland Christian in Lexington, Kentucky used to tell. Now, when Christian Herder was governor of Massachusetts, he was running hard for a second term in office. He's out there on the campaign trail. He's trying to stir up these boats. And on one day, after a busy morning chasing boats, it had just taken me, he had been so busy, he had never had time to eat lunch. And so he's really hungry. And he's driving along, he arrives at a church barbecue. Now, it's late afternoon, and man, Herder is famished. And so Herder, he jumps in the serving line. As he's moving down the serving line with his plate, taking his time, he holds out his plate. He gets, finally gets to the woman that's serving the barbecue chicken. He holds out his plate. He, man, he's drooling. He's, he just can't wait. And so she puts one piece on his plate, turns to the next person in line. And he, he holds her up. He says, excuse me, do you mind if I have another piece of chicken? She said, sorry, I'm supposed to give one piece of chicken to each person. The governor says, but, but I'm starved. I've been out all day. I, I haven't eaten. She said, sorry, only one to a person. Now, Governor Herder, he was a, he was a modest and unassuming man, but he decided, all right, I'm hungry. I'm, I'm a little hangry right now. This woman is not listening. He decided he was going to throw his weight around a little bit. He's like, do you, you know, do you know who I am? So he said, do you know who I am? Ma'am, I am the governor of this state. And she says, do you know who I am? I'm the lady in charge of the chicken. Now move along, mister. Sometimes we think a little more of ourselves and we deserve a little more than maybe we actually do. And we can be rest assured. We can say, you know who I am? Well, God knows who you are. And that can be comforting, right? Because we all want to be seen. 
We want somebody to notice us. Sometimes we feel like we are just invisible, that nobody's looking out for us, that nobody cares about us. We feel like nobody hears us. Nobody takes an interest in us. We're just going through this life invisible. So rest assured, God does see you, and he knows who you are. But while God does see you, and he does know you, there's another side of that. Because he also knows who you really are. And we can go through this life and we can put on a mask and we can put on a brave face and we can, we can try to impress people and puff up ourselves. But in the end, God knows who you really are. See, there are only two people who knew who you really are, and that's you and God. Now, like the church in Ephesus, some of us ha- have strayed from our first love. See, you, you used to put Jesus above all things. You used to make your involvement in church a priority. You used to serve in the church. You used to be a part of an amazing small group. You used to read your Bible frequently. You used to have an amazing prayer life. You used to share your faith with others. But now, somewhere along the way, something has changed. And all of it is used to, when you've begun to drift from the one who is the head of the church, you've drifted away from your first love. So friends, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're a teenager working your first job at Kroger or the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Jesus is and will always be more important than you. And he says to you, I want total commitment from you. I want full sacrifice from you. I don't care who you are. I want it all. I want to be the number one in your life. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how much success, how many accomplishments you've had. I don't want a seat at your table. I want to be the only seat at your table. It doesn't matter who you are. I want to be number one. Here's a second phrase for us today. That's it. It doesn't matter what you have. Most of us won't admit this, but deep down, a lot of us think that it all comes back to what we have and what we possess. The last church that Jesus addresses out of the seven was in a city called Laodicea. And it was a very wealthy and medically advanced city. It was the wealthiest of the seven churches that Jesus addresses here, but Jesus was not impressed by their wealth. The city of Laodicea was a highly commercial city, well well known for its its banking, its fashion, and and manufacturing industries. They made black wool for clothing and woolen carpets. They also had an elite medical school that had produced an eye ointment from pulverized rock in the area. Now, I don't know about you, but putting pulverized rock in my eyes doesn't sound very pleasant or effective, but apparently it was. So what do I know? I guess I didn't grow up in Laodicea. You know, they were known for their advancements in technology, and they had built theaters. They had a huge stadium there. They had lavish public baths and fabulous shopping centers. From the outside, it looked like they were the epitome of wealth and success. And as you read through some of those descriptions, you think about us today, you think, man, that kind of sounds like an American city, like a, a, a successful, popular American city. But of all the amazing things this city had, the one thing that it lacked was a good source of clean water. Isn't that crazy? From the outside, it looks like they've they've got it all together. Man, look at all this. Look at all that they have. But they don't have the one basic thing that you kind of need, right? They don't have clean drinking water. Nearby, Hierapolis was was famous for its hot springs. And nearby Colossae, it was noted for a cold, clear stream of excellent drinking water. 
So since the river Lycus dried up in summer, Laodicea, they built this, this system of viaducts that would bring in the hot spring waters of Hierapolis and the cold waters from Colossae. And you think, wow, that, okay, that, that would solve the problem. But as advanced as that technology was for their day, well, the, re the result was that the two mixed together. And the water came in and mixed together and it ended up being lukewarm, impure, and sometimes foul-smelling. You couldn't drink it. It would sometimes make you sick. And so what Jesus says in Revelation 3.15 makes more sense to us. <clears throat> he says, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot or neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. The condition of their heart was like that of the water coming into their city. It wasn't hot or cold. You couldn't use it. It would make you sick. And the condition of their heart was making Jesus sick. They weren't refreshingly cold and they weren't on fire hot. They were lukewarm. In his book, Crazy Love, author Francis Chan gives a lengthy profile of what it looks like to be lukewarm. And he says that lukewarm people attend church fairly regularly. It's what's expected of them, what they believe good Christians do, and so they, they go. Lukewarm people give money to charity and to the church as long as it doesn't impinge on their standard of living, as long as they don't have to sacrifice financially. Lukewarm people don't really want to be saved from their sin. They only want to be saved from the penalty of their sin. Lukewarm people call the, the things that Jesus just expected of his followers, what it looked like to be a follower of his, lukewarm people call that radical. Lukewarm people rarely share their faith with their neighbors or their coworkers or their friends. Lukewarm people gauge their morality or their goodness by comparing themselves to the secular world. Lukewarm people think about life on earth much more often than they do eternity in heaven. Lukewarm people do whatever is necessary to keep themselves from feeling too guilty. Lukewarm people are continually concerned with playing it safe. They are slaves to the God of control. And lukewarm people do not live by faith because their lives are structured so that they'll never have to. This church at Laodicea, they were blowing it big time because of their materialism and because they were lukewarm. They were trying to live in both places. Now, New Testament scholar Mark Moore, he suggests that of all the churches listed, our American churches look more like Laodicea than the other six. And that's kind of sad because this is the only church in which Jesus has nothing good to say. Much of the comparison comes down to the fact that we have a lot of wealth and we all struggle with materialism. More rights. We have money coming out of our ears. It is not, of course, of course, a sin to have money. It's a sin to love money. It's a sin to trust money. And the problem with trusting money is that it is so deceptive. You're comfortable the entire time that you're doing it without ever realizing just how far away from God you really are. And when it goes away... When you can no longer trust in what you've built up, you find yourself lost, like you've strayed away from the coast, from the banks, and you've gotten farther out than you ever realized. In a strange way in their hearts, the church at Laodicea, they mirrored their water system. They looked really impressive, like they had it all together, but the more they traveled the streets of their city, the more they became like their water, lukewarm and sickening. And so it doesn't matter who you are, and it doesn't matter what you have. 
And finally, the overall message we hear from these letters is that it doesn't matter where you've been. Jesus has some harsh words for Ephesus and Laodicea, but these aren't hateful words. They're tough love words. And so if we're here this morning and we hear these things and we feel uh, like a conviction of like, man, that's hard to hear, right? And we say that the American church is like Laodicea, and it's like, wow, if we're saying we're lukewarm, that's hard to hear. But they're not hateful words. They're tough love. Listen again to what Jesus says at the end of chapter 3. It says, those whom I love... I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This is an invitation from Jesus himself. Yeah, it might be tough words, but he's saying, but I'm right here. There's still time. There's still time to turn it around and come back. This invitation from Jesus himself. I love the story of the preacher who was out making calls one day, and he drove by the house of one of his elder members that didn't get a lot of visitors. She kind of lived out in the country, and not many people got out to see her. And so he drove by, he saw her car in the driveway, and he thought, well, while I'm out here, I'll just stop by and check up on her because, well, it looks like she's home. Well, this looks like a good time to visit. So he, he rolls up the door. As he walks up, he sees that the door's open, the screen door is shut, so it looks like she's home for sure. And, and he goes to the door, and he starts knocking but there was no answer. And so he knocks again a little bit harder and no answer. Now he can hear the TV playing inside the house, so he knows that he, she has to be nearby. She had to be there recently. But finally, after three knocks with no reply, he pulls out a business card and he thinks, oh, as a joke, I'll just write on here, Revelation 3.20, which and he tucks it in the door. That's, of course, the verse that we just read. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. You know, a little preacher humor. Well, by the following Sunday, he still hadn't heard from this woman. He's getting a little worried, but in she walks. She shows up at church. She walks right past him. She hands him the business card that he had left in her door, except now Revelation 3.20 has been marked out, and instead was written Genesis 3.10. And he's standing there, and he's thinking, Genesis 3.10. Off the top of my head, I don't know what that is. I'll have to look that up later. So after the services, he, he, he goes, and he finally is able to look up Genesis 3.10 later that day, and it says, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. <laughs> Listen, if you're going to memorize a verse, just keep that in your holster, okay? When, when Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me, that has significance. And I hope you realize the significance of it. That though we might have lost our way, though we might have gotten into more of a lukewarm state, though we might have lost our way and wandered off the path, though we might be convicted of how we are living as Christians, it has significance because it doesn't matter who you are and it doesn't matter what you have. So if you, it doesn't matter if you've done the greatest things in your life and it doesn't matter whether you have a million dollars in your checking account or one dollar because it doesn't matter who you are and it doesn't matter what you have. It matters who he is and it doesn't matter where you've been. And whether you've got skeletons in your closet from the past or you are living in sin right now, it doesn't matter where you've been. What matters is that you are zealous and you repent because there's still time to turn it around. And the, Jesus is there. He's knocking on your door and he's saying, I know that you're entangled in this and I know that you've lost your way, but here I am. I stand and knock. Will you open the door for me? 
Friends, Jesus is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and he is inviting you to dinner. Isn't that amazing that we have this opportunity, that it's not over, that when you wake up every day and take a breath, there is still time to live for Jesus. There is still time to repent and come back to him. The only question is, will you accept his invitation? Let's pray. Father God, you are so amazing. You are so awesome, and I just say wow sometimes. Because for as many times as I might fall short, for as many times as I might get entangled in my sin, for as many times as I might stray from the path, for as many times as I might walk away from you, you sent your son Jesus because you loved me so much. And here, here we read, he stands at the door and knocks, waiting for us to invite him in. He's not tearing down the door. <laughs> He's not busting his way in. He stands and waits for us to accept his invitation. Father, if there are those here this morning that are struggling because they've left the path They've gone astray. Maybe they've been trying to live for both worlds and now they're lukewarm. Father, we can read those things and we can, we can be discouraged. We can be scared. But I hope what we take from this is that there's still hope. That there's still time. Yes, that we've read this today and we know what's wrong. We know how not to live. And if we're living that way, yeah, it might be an eye-opener. But because of your love and your amazing grace, we can start to live for you today. We still have an opportunity. And so, Father, I pray for those that are struggling with this today, that are dealing with these things, some of the things we brought up today, that are feeling convicted today, that they will listen and they will be zealous and repent. Father, I know, I don't know what everybody struggles with, but I know that we all have sins that we're dealing with. We all have things that we're dealing with in our lives. And Father, I just pray that we would not take these things lightly, but that we would fight against our sinful nature so we would not make a practice of sinning. So that we could show the world the light of Jesus. Father, there are so many out there. Every day there are so many people around us where Jesus is knocking and they don't even know that it's him. Where he wants to be a part of their life, but they don't know him. They are lost souls that need somebody to point them to who Jesus really is so he can change their heart and change their life. And so, Father, I pray that we would take a responsibility for that, that we would not be entangled in this world, entangled in our sin, but that we would love you and love others the way that you have loved us that we would have a heart for those that are around us that don't know your son, Jesus. Father, I thank you so much for your love, that you would love all of us so much, that you would love me so much, that it doesn't matter who I am and it doesn't matter what I have, but you love me so much that you would send your son, Jesus, so I could have my sin washed away, that he would defeat death, that he has the keys to death and to Hades so that I can have eternal life with you. So I thank you for the grace that comes through that and for the living hope 
that I can wake up with every day. Father, I pray that we would never forget that. That we would love you, that we would love others, and that we would try to reach others for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, there's no greater day than, than today, than right now to come forward and say, I want to be baptized into him. I want to be a new creation in Jesus Christ. I want to walk out of here a different person today with a hope that goes beyond anything this world could offer. You know, I was having a conversation with my friend Rodney before services this morning. I love my conversations with Rodney because he's so encouraging, but also because oftentimes he will just bring something in that, he, that God has put on his heart, and it is applicable for today. And that's one of the ways that God is so awesome. But this morning we were talking about how so often in our, in our lives we try to make our own way, and we try to do our own thing. We find ourselves running from God, because I, I don't want to do it that way, God. I don't want to wait that long, God. I want to do it this way right now. Please, let's just do it this way right now. This is the easiest path. Come on. So you, you find yourself, you're running from God. And you're, as much as you're running from God, you're running and you're running, and you're looking behind you, waiting to see if he's back there, and then all of a sudden, you run right into him because you just ran a circle around. How many times do we run circles around trying to do things on our own and just to end up in the same place? It's exhausting. It's exhausting to run circles day after day just trying to do it our way when God's saying, if you just, it was a, a straight line, if you would have just done it the way I wanted to. Friends, if you don't have that relationship with God, it's time to stop running away from Him and exhausting yourself trying to earn success and earn salvation in this world when Jesus says, I'm right here and you can't do it anyway. Because I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I'm the only way to salvation. So if you've never been baptized this morning, man, today is the day. Today is the day to take that straight line and say, I want to trust him with the rest of my life. If you need prayer this morning, I'll, I'll be right down front. I'd love to pray with you. God has given us this amazing weapon against the spiritual forces of our world. And make no mistake, we are in battle and opposition, and so thank goodness we have this, that we can hand over our cares and anxieties, our burdens, and our hurts over to the Almighty God, and that He hears us, then He's there. We can know these things. So if you just need somebody to pray with you this morning, I would love to come alongside you and just lift it up to God and bring Him into whatever situation is going on in your life or somebody close with you. So if you have a decision to make or you need some prayer this morning, I'll be right down front. I'd love to talk to you. But let's all stand now and sing our final song together.